I want to tell you a little bit about what it's like to grow up as a um, teenager at the moment. That's just because I work with 12 to 24-year-olds and so I know teens and I also do youth leading and I once was a teenager not too long ago. Um, So that's my main bread and butter. But that doesn't mean that what I'm saying isn't applicable to under 12s or over 24s. Um, But most of what I say will kind of come from that teenager-y perspective. Um, So why teens? Um, Well, teenaging is hard. Um, People say adulting is hard, but I think teenagering is harder. Um, That's because there's a lot of social changes and brain changes and body changes and everything's changing all at once. So the brain is more at risk of stress and so there's more um, risk of developing a mental health um, disorder. And so today I want to talk about the three most common things that I see in teenagers, anxiety, depression and what is being labelled problematic interactive media use um, and the addictions that come with that. And I'm going to try and give you a little bit of idea of what you can do, what a professional can do and some helpful tips as well. So it could be a little bit more of a heavy chat compared to tidying up, but hopefully um, really helpful. (laughs) Um, So before I go any further, a lot of people just don't know how, what, where, when, why, who about mental health at all. So a, a quick hack to understand mental health and mental illness is to understand that Um, The self is made up of four interacting aspects, the physical, mental, spiritual and relational and all impact each other and all, yeah, it's all at once. So if there's ever a problem, it's not because of one area, it's all the areas, all at once. Um, So you can never say there's one cause, it's very complex. Um, And you can actually see this in the Bible um, when Luke writes about Jesus, he says, Jesus kept increasing in wisdom, which I'd call the mental, and stature, which I'd call the physical, and in favour with God, the spiritual aspects, and men, the relational aspects of our being. And this is what psychologists use. I know it's a bit of a busy slide, but basically it's the biopsychosocial model is the kind of main explanation that people who work in the area use. And some people who like to add the psych the spiritual, I do, the biopsychosocial spiritual model. Um, I know you can't really see that, but basically that shows that they all interact in different ways. All right. So anxiety. Um, What is anxiety and what is helpful anxiety and what is unhelpful anxiety? Um, So anxiety is a natural experience that we all have when we're faced with a perceived threat or danger. It's the fight, 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 flight, freeze, flop response. (laughs) People don't know about flop, but if you ever see someone get their blood taken and they faint, that's flopping. (laughs) Um, It's an automatic response that happens in our mind, in our bodies and in our behaviour. And it's so that we react quickly to danger and so we survive. So it's helpful. Now, what's unhelpful? Well, this is actually... Oh, I wish the screens were a bit bigger. But this is something that I do with my clients. So this is, um, and using that model that I explained before, what we do to find out what is going on for someone when they're experiencing anxiety. So we work out what the situation is. It's any perceived threat. So that's the top box. Or can I, can you see that when I, no, okay. Um, And then what are the thoughts that are triggered? Usually for someone who's experiencing anxiety, their thoughts like what if, what's going to happen when, I'm, and beliefs about not being safe and feeling like they're in danger. 
Um, and that has an impact on their emotions. Um, so they usually fear fear, anxiety, worry, nervousness, jumpiness. Um, and that will lead to, well, at, it's all at the same time if you can see that there's arrows going in all directions. Um, the physical sensations would be nausea, racing heart, breathlessness, shaking, sweating, and blushing, all different physical sensations that come up because of that natural response. Um, and then behaviours, typically any way that they can avoid the perceived threat, and that would be the fight-flight-fight response. Um, and so I guess the key thing from this is to see that it's the thoughts, feelings, behaviours and physical sensations all interacting all at once um, and, and affecting each other. And it can kind of go thought first, then feeling and then behaviour, da, 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 but it can also go the other way and it also goes this way and that way. Um, so in sessions we try and address each one of those boxes. And the thing that keeps anxiety going and makes it go from an a normal kind of helpful response or at least an automatic response and to something that becomes a quite a difficult problem and a pervasive experience is the behaviour of avoidance. Um, that's what we call a maintaining factor, something that keeps it going, keeps the cycle going. So when you feel anxiety, it leads to an avoidance. And in the short term, that makes you feel better. So that avoidance response is reinforced um, but then there's more long-term anxiety because you don't actually learn that you would cope or that things would be okay or that you have the capacity to deal. So if that experience happens again, you feel even more anxiety and you do more avoidance and that goes on and on and on. Um, does that make sense? Yeah. <clears throat> so when do we call it a disorder if it's a normal kind of response? That generally comes down to how significantly it's getting in the way of your everyday life. So looking at how it impacts your social ed interactions, education, jobs and recreational activities. And actually one in four Australians will during their lifetime experience an anxiety disorder. So it's not all that uncommon. So I'm going to quickly run through what the main categories of anxiety disorder is. Um, that's just because there's a myth that anxiety is just this like oh, all pervasive thing. But there's actually different ways that anxiety presents. Social anxiety disorder is mostly um, an excessive fear and worry in social situations. The thoughts that come up are often that others will think I'm, insert any negative thing, usually a, someone think I'm bad or someone think I'm stupid, um, or that you'll do something embarrassing. The feelings that are associated with that are often um, nausea, blushing and trembling and the behaviours are avoiding eye contact, avoiding speaking, avoiding social activities and avoiding or asking questions or answering questions or asking questions in class. Okay, so generalised anxiety disorder. is It's more difficult to pick than some of the others because it's a lot more cognitive. It's more in the thoughts. Um, but it would still have the, the physical sensations and the behaviours because all are interacting, as I explained before. But... The generalised anxiety disorder, or GAD, if you want, is excessive, unrealistic um, and uncontrollable worry. Um, so about everything, health, school, jobs, um, just getting home that day, world events, everything. And the hallmark thought is what ifs and asking excessive reassuring, reassurance questions, trying to get details, trying to plan, um, preparing for catastrophic events, um, rumination reviewing past events 
um, and can often come across like perfectionism or conscientiousness. But it also does have physical symptoms, usually headaches, stomach aches, inability to unwind and sleeping difficulties. Now, separation anxiety is a particular fear about leaving your parents or caregivers um, and a fear that something bad will happen to them or something bad will happen to you. Um, and it's much more common for younger children, but um, it can actually um, present in older children as well and often as well in the elderly. Um, panic disorder and agoraphobia or agoraphobia is characterised by panic attacks that come out of the blue um, and it's actually the fear of the panic attacks occurring again and not being able to escape or do, being somewhere embarrassing um, and that fear of the panic attack actually triggers more panic attacks um, and that's why people don't leave the house or they don't want to go to be in queues or they don't want to go to the shops because they fear getting a panic attack and a panic attack is an overwhelming fear of anxiety. It doesn't usually last more than 10 minutes. It often feels like you're dying. Um, people think they're having a heart attack or something like that. It's pretty terrifying, um, but you kind, if you are experiencing a panic attack, the best thing to do is remember that it will pass and it's just a physical sensation because it's the fear of the panic attack that keeps the panic attack going. So just breathe. Oh, my body's freaking out, but I'll be fine. I'm not going to die. I'll be okay. Um, is probably the best thing to think. And if you're with someone, don't judge them that they're having a panic attack. Just sit with them until it passes because it will pass and they will not die. Um, okay, so red flags to look for um, generally um, if you're worried that someone has anxiety or just what is problematic. So things I think in young people especially is skipping school, big red flag, refusing activities and reluctance to try new activities, um, physical symptoms like blushing, shaking, mumbling, uh, not answering in public situations or social situations. Also becoming sick right before a test or a performance or something like that. So trying to avoid things um, and being on high alert for, jump, uh, for danger. So it can come across like a bit jumpy, a bit hypervigilant, a bit keyed up on edge sort of experience. Um, always thinking the worst, so always jumping to conclusions that something is going to be terrible or bad um, and avoiding certain people or places or situations. Um, so I guess this all shows the avoidance characteristic and that fight and flight physical response and the thoughts of what if something bad is going to happen, X, X, Y, Z. Okay, so this is what you shouldn't do. Well, here's some ideas. I got this from a book, so if you don't agree, consult the book. Um, <laughs> it's here with me now. <laughs> um, so don't dismiss or ignore the fear. That's not helpful. Don't push the young person to face situations they don't want to face. And don't constantly reassure the young person. Uh, don't do everything for them. Don't criticise them. And don't label the young person as shy or anxious. Um, they're some of the typical things that people might do accidentally without realising it, but they can be unhelpful um, for the young person. But here's what you can do. Um, <clears throat> listen and acknowledge the young person's fear. Use words that the young person uses to describe their anxiety rather than labelling them. Um, encourage the young person to collect evidence for their worried thoughts and ask questions rather than reassure. So that would look like instead of saying, oh, there's nothing to worry about, which would be giving reassurance, 
is in teaching them to find their own evidence by saying, well, what happened last time? And hopefully they can generate the thoughts that nothing bad happened last time. So more likely nothing bad's going to happen this time. Does that make sense? Um, gently encourage the young person to face their fear in a gradual fashion um, as this is the key to overcoming anxiety. So rather than flooding them <laughs> with everything that they fear and being like, you'll cope, you'll be fine, you want to do little step-by-step um, exposure to the f- anxiety and use incentives and positive reinforcements to motivate the young person to face their fears rather than punishment or criticism or some of those other things I said don't do before. All right, but when do you seek help? So when when does it become too much and you need to get some professional help? Uh, well, I say the, the kind of the difference between natural anxiety and the disorder is determined by the intensity, um, the frequency, and the level of interference. So most people would experience peaking anxiety in different times in their life, usually before an exam or, you know, for young people it could be before the school formal or um, before they go away on a camp. If your young person is feeling anxious about those things, I wouldn't be worried. That's normal. That's okay. It is a little bit anxiety-provoking. But if they're experiencing peaking anxiety at smaller things or more often or the level of anxiety is um, very distressing, more than their peers, then that could be an indication that you should get some help for them. So these are some questions to consider. And if you answer yes to one of these questions, it's probably a good idea to um, seek some professional help. So is the anxiety stopping them from doing things that they want to be able to do or interfering with friendships or schoolwork or family life? So that's the, is it getting in the way? Is it interfering? Um, And is the anxiety occurring more often and more intensely compared to peers? Uh, So that's the two main questions to ask about um, whether or not it's helpful or unhelpful anxiety. And I guess you can't really go wrong to get some help anyway, even if you're not so sure, because you can learn some coping strategies. But I would just be fearful of what we call pathologizing, so making something seem like a disease when it's just the normal reaction or normal response and um, in not allowing the young person to realise they can cope. So you just actually be reinforcing the anxiety in another way. But that's a bit complicated. Just stick to these questions. And Okay, so then the moving on to depression. Um, so this is probably the second most common um, experience that young people have or we call it the mood disorders because it can also include bipolar or dysthymia, cyclothymia and a few others. So depression is more than sadness. Depression is a mental illness characterised by overwhelming sadness, a low mood, very little motivation and a lack of hope for the future. Um, So here we have the depression cycle that's often used by psychologists and that shows that the depression, well, this is what keeps the depression going or makes it worse. Depression leads to low energy and fatigue, um, which then leads to decreased activity um, and neglect of responsibility which then leads to increased guilt and hopelessness and ineffectiveness which then leads to more depression more low energy more neglect more guilt more depression and goes on and on and on so we usually try and reverse that cycle usually by just doing fun stuff or doing any activity or looking after yourself just trying to send it back the other way Um, But a lot of people think that young people can't get depressed because it's the best time of your life. So how could you? Um, It's almost insulting um, is what parents seem to feel sometimes. Um, But actually, adolescence is 
a really high risk time for developing depression. And by the age of 18, um, up to 20% of teenagers will have experienced a depressive episode. Um, and half, actually half to, up to half the mental disorders that experience in a lifetime occur for the first time between the ages of 12 and 18. Um, and that's because of um, the changes in the thinking processes and brain circuits that expose the brain to higher levels of stress as well as significant changes in the social environment. Um, so that just makes it a little bit more of a um, high-risk time. So when is it depression though and natural sadness or when is it bereavement or someone broke up with their girlfriend and they're feeling sad like should they what is is that bad or you know these are some of the questions that I get asked and I think depression is actually referring to a specific cluster of symptoms and it can be mild moderate or severe depending on the constellation of those symptoms and how severely they're impacting their daily life and so similar to anxiety, the extent to which these thoughts and feelings and behaviours are interfering with everyday life is one of the main signs and the extent to which they are distressing. Um, and I just wanted to also flag that the depression as an illness can also make the young person feel like they are unlikely to get better and they have no hope for the future and this often leads to thoughts that they're better off dead um, and that's actually quite a common experience and those sorts of thoughts should always be taken seriously. Um, some people dismiss them as attention-seeking, uh, but I think that there is a reason why they're seeking attention and it is a sign that they need some extra support. Um, and discussing those thoughts, unlike some myths, it doesn't actually put ideas in their head, so you don't need to be worried to ask or to talk about it. It's not going to make someone feel like they're better off dead if you ask, but if they are, which is actually probably more likely than people realise, at least it creates a safe place where people feel like they can talk about it um, and get the help that they need. So what are the red flags if someone has um, depression or some sort of mood disorder? Okay, this is a little bit of a lot of writing, so I'm going to go through it. I might spend a little bit more time on this one. So it should look a bit like... Oh, and I guess for young people it is a little bit more likely that it's hard to pick up um, because of teenage angst or moodiness or hormonal changes. But also um, people sometimes get stuck on the behavioural changes and they forget that it could be a symptom of the depression. So substance abuse, um, skipping school, reckless behaviour. Um, people often focus on that and forget that that could also be an indication that there's something bigger going on. Um, so for young people, the red flags to look out for is a severe and noticeable change in mood that lasts for two weeks or more. Um, although that is a little bit um, flexible depending on the circumstances. So if someone's died or there's a breakup or you lost a job or you failed a test or you know there's um, some sort of trigger, then it, that could last a bit longer and that's okay. Um, a complete loss of motivation, avoidance of normal activities... Uh, spending more time alone or withdrawing from social activities, uh, having no plans for the future, having trouble concentrating, getting schoolwork done, remembering details um, or making decisions, uh, no longer finding favourite activities enjoyable is a big one. So if you're a young person used to like playing guitar and you've noticed they haven't played the guitar in weeks, um, that's a big sign. 
unless they've just decided to take up another activity. <laughs> that's not, that's okay. <laughs> um, feelings of weariness, tiredness, or lack of energy. Um, warning signs continued. <laughs> uh, other warning signs would be self-harming behaviour, such as cutting or burning. Um, this is actually quite common in teenagers at the moment. There is a slight aspect of contagion in young people with regards to cutting. So that just means like um, oh, it's contagious. <laughs> uh, and sometimes it's related to suicidal thinking and sometimes it's emotion regulation. Um, so I tend to mostly respond to it as a, an emotion regulation strategy. Um, so when how young people are being taught by their peers how to cope with intense emotions. Um, but sometimes it is related to... Um, thoughts of death um, and should always be taken seriously. Um, if you notice scars or um, burn marks or that sort of thing, it's worth having a conversation about. And there are, a, it's mostly what I, how I treat um, people who are experiencing self-harming urges is trying to replace that urge to self-harm with a different coping strategy. So you can't just stop it because it's it's got a function. You can't just say, oh, stop that. Um, that that's not helpful. Um, you actually need to find something that could replace that. In so often, it's like holding ice or eating cinnamon or doing burpees, something like that, um, to to kind of mirror the same effect that they were getting from the self harming behavior. Because it's actually a very um, helpful, functional way of coping for some young people. They don't know any other better way. It's the best way they know. Um, so until you give them a better way, it's not they're not going to f- stop. Um, and I guess the the worry is that it could lead to more um, harm if something goes wrong. So that's why we would address it. But I don't try and it's not the be all and end all. So I often there's it's often an indication that there's something more going on. So it's sort of like oh we'll talk about that on the side, but that's not the biggest problem usually. It's something else. Um, so don't freak out too much. Try and stay calm if you notice it, um, and try and have a conversation about it. Um, Moving on, irritability and anger and hostility are often signs that are missed. So um, this is the um, other side of sadness, particularly, although not always in uh, males. They often don't want to express sadness, but it will come out as irritability, angeriness, hostility, short temper, um, that sort of thing. Explosive anger often as well. And then also frequently crying um, about not much is... Can, can be a sign, an irresponsible behaviour, so forgetting obligations, being late for classes, skipping school and rebellious behaviour can also be associated with um, an experience of depression. And as well as feeling um, feelings of excessive or inappropriate guilt, uh, having a low sense of self-worth, feeling without hope, um, changes in eating, so that's either overeating or undereating. Um, and changing in sleep. Uh, so that's either sleeping too much or sleeping too little. Typically, young people will not sleep at night and sleep in the day. And that's kind of normal for teenagers, but if it is excessive or more than their peers, then that's something to worry about. And a general apathy towards life. So anyone questions about those slides? No. Okay, so what can you do? Uh, sorry, this is a bit small. Um, I guess the main thing is to create a safe and supportive place where you can talk about how 
you're feeling, how your young person's feeling. Uh, particularly with depression, they can be thinking a bit slower. So make sure you be patient and give them the time that they need. So you can't just be like, how are you feeling? And then they grunt and you go, oh, fine, you don't want to talk to me anyway. Um, you have to sit with that a little bit longer than, I don't know, five minutes. Uh, grab a drink with you and when they grunt, just have a sip and grunt back. And then <laughs> and then they'll probably say something. <laughs> Seriously, that's a, that's a trick for you there <laughs> for free. <laughs> oh, yeah, be patient and compassionate and try and not say anything too quickly. Um, try and get on their level so if they're feeling low you kind of have to slow down a bit as well um, and encourage the young person to seek professional help I'll, go, I'll give you a bit more about that later and ask them if they've been hurting themselves or having thoughts of suicide kind of what I alluded to before it's not going to put the idea in their head um, it's better to actually ask about it um, and then I, the number one thing that we try and uh, get the young person to do to treat their anxiety is to do fun stuff every day so um, if you schedule some time to do fun stuff with your young person, that is really helpful and they probably want quality time and they need someone to help them do things that are fun because they don't feel like doing it. Um, and also to really encourage good sleep, good hygiene, good eating and exercise. And actually studies have shown that exercise is comparable to antidepressants um, for teenagers um, so the first line of treatment often is getting them to do 30 to 60 minutes of moderate to, inten um, to intense exercise. So get them to CrossFit that's or the shed or something <laughs> like is the best thing you can do. Um, or do the seven minutes of HIIT workouts on YouTube or something like that. Do it together. Um, they won't want to do it, but you just got to make them. Uh, <laughs> Or show them all the research about it. Um, and it also helps because they are more healthy in all the other ways. And I guess if your young person's a Christian as well, you could read the Bible and pray with them. Often if they have the illness, they won't be able to or they won't want to do those things even if they know that they should or they, they do want to but they can't. It's a real difficult one. Um, so often all they could manage is listening. So doing um, reading the Bible with the young person or praying with them can be really helpful. And I also take away that, that guilt or that shame that they feel like they're failing in yet another area of their life. Um, and, yeah, I can go on a bit more about that later or talk to you after. So what kind of professional help should one get? Now, that's a bit of a complex question and it's a rabbit warren that no one can answer um, but I guess the easiest place to start is seeing your GP um, they can help with a mental health care plan and I often suggest that recommending anyone to see the GP is a very low intensity no stigma attached um, recommendation so usually if someone's struggling I'll be like have you seen a GP lately is a good question to talk about like have you had a checkup um, because the, it, yeah, it's not that scary to go see a GP. Although teenagers often don't go to a GP anyway, so anything is scary and hard. Um, but yeah, that's probably the easiest and best way to start. And the most evidence-based um, treatment for depression is what's known as cognitive behavioural therapy. 
uh, which is a targeted intervention on those thoughts, feelings and behaviours um, that I explained before. Um, and usually, well, yeah, it's best to see a psychologist or a clinical psychologist, but also counsellors and mental health social workers can be trained in CBT, but just make sure you work out whether or not they actually are trained in the particular therapy because just talking about um, what's going on might not be the best um, treatment for the depression and there is some emerging evidence for online self-help CBT programs um, actually quite good evidence for mild depression so sometimes I'd even recommend going to the online things first or in addition to um, seeing someone um, I get my clients I try and get them to see me but also to do one online um, it's like homework and then medication alone is not recommended, especially for adolescents. Um, but in severe cases, there is some evidence for combining um, the CBT treatment with medication. Um, and I guess we often see it help people engage in the therapy. But the first line of treatment is definitely not medication. It is face-to-face -face therapy. Any questions about that? Yep. Oh, uh, yeah. Um, so there is a difference between psychologist and a psychiatrist. The psychiatrist will be managing medication. So in severe cases where medication is used, they'd see a psychiatrist and probably um, reviewing three to six monthly. Um, if you're seeing a psychologist or someone who is um, giving the CBT therapy, probably weekly to fortnightly, depending on the severity. Um, but if But it's sort of like going to a personal trainer. If you just go once a week and you don't do anything at home, you're not going to see any results. So you need to see the therapist and do homework like every day, like actually put the effort in, otherwise you won't see any results. So that's why I try and get people to see me or you know a psychologist and then do the stuff online throughout the week. And usually you can see results within four to eight weeks. Um, if you're not seeing any changes after seeing someone for six weeks, see someone else. It sh you should be seeing measurable changes at... Um, six weeks but the more severe it is the longer it'll take uh, some for depression some really severe cases can take up to a year or more how long should they stay on medication i'm just saying that's up to the prescribing doctor to decide yes yeah, so that was a question about what do you actually do with the person when they're doing cbt therapy um that's a bit of a longer answer because it's a it's an individualized treatment for each person usually but it is to address the thoughts feelings behaviors and physical sensations um like you know how I showed the situation thoughts feelings behaviors so we usually would do that with the client and then we'd come up with um, replacements that are more helpful for each of those um, areas but it's also skill building and um emotion regulation strategies but I guess the the best answer to that question would be I'd refer you to go and do one of the online CBT courses and see for yourself. Um, I'd recommend Mood Gym or MindSpot, but I'll get back to that later. I think everyone can benefit from it, so the, the more people that know about it, the better. But thanks for that question. But I might move on. Um, I'm running out of time and you guys are probably getting bored, so I'm just going to rush through this last one. Um, but the next slide is about kind of the emerging area, um, the most rapidly increasing public health problem that people don't really know about yet but it's just crazy um is problematic interactive media use um so that's the addictions related to media use uh usually social media video gaming 
um, pornography and information seeking or binge watching or binge surfing. And so this is an emerging area, as I said, but it's actually the number one thing that young people report to me as their number one health concern, um, which is usually addictions to their phones or addictions to pornography. Um, That's between the ages of 12 and 24. Um, That's their number one concern. So it's not the older people saying this to the young people because often the, the parents or the older people don't even know that this is even a problem. It's the young people that report this and they don't know what to do about it. No one knows what to do about it. That's not true. But it does feel like a little bit of a black hole that we're just entering. Um, the Centre on Child and Media Health in Boston Children's Hospital is kind of the leading um, researching field and the treating area. You can go to their website um, to find out. But they describe PIMU or Problematic Interactive Media Use as... Um, Video gaming that includes excessive gaming on a computer, console or mobile device where the child or teen player plays for hours on end after only taking breaks when forced. Um, A social media addiction can often look like where social media is the primary way to communicate with others and instead of face-to-face communication, so it gets in the way of... And then pornography, including excessive use that leads to sexual dysfunction and information-seeking as um, spending hours of time online surfing websites and binge-watching videos in place of other activities. So the red flags are when the young person spends too much time online or watching TV instead of participating in the other activities. So like all disorders, it's the level of interference that's the problem. But you can also look for if they're lying about the amount of time that's used or they're using it as escape from other issues but also look for declines in personal hygiene, decreases in school performance and social withdrawal. What can you do about it? Try and educate your young people on how to use media mindfully. Um, talk about the use of media purposefully, so that's as a tool for a purpose. So you could explain that using an iPad to research for the school project is a great way to use media. Media is not you know, all round terrible, but you've got to use it as appropriate. Um, what don't let it master you, you master it sort of idea about how we use the media. And it's important to have limits and parameters and make sure that they are enforced. It's usually helpful to um, have the conversation with your young person, at, depending on how old they are and what they think is an appropriate amount of time and come to a decision together because, as I said, it's the young person who is often the one that brings up the problem. So they know that it's a problem often, well, at least by the age of 12, Um, So giving them some ownership over it can be really helpful. Um, And then designate time for media use and non-media use. Okay, we're running out of time, so I'm just going to highlight this one. I'm not sure if people have an idea about the extent to which um, pornography is a problem for young people. Studies have shown that more than 90% of 13 to 16-year-olds have viewed online pornography, and that was a study done in 2006, so that's before smartphones. So it's only really increased since that time. Um, and 60% of girls. And then I guess the, the age of um, sexting is well and truly upon us. At least 69% of young people have um, had someone send a nude or they've sent a nude to someone. And often the um, exposure isn't always deliberate. Sometimes it's through inadvertent pop-ups or searching different terms. And even if you're using filter software, that often doesn't really 
help. So the best thing to do is to try and monitor the time and the use by making sure that there's no electronics in the rooms and having different there's different things you can put on smartphones to make it um, easier to monitor the use. And there is good evidence to show, and I guess I don't know if psychology is ahead of the rest of the culture here, but there is a growing evidence for the um, destructiveness of pornography for sexual dysfunction and sexual aggression and poorer mental health as well. So psychologists are, are very rare to argue the point that it's fine and it's natural and people should be able to do what they do actually I think the culture is a bit behind on that one I'm not sure where you guys sit but yeah the rest most people would be happy to say that watching pornography is bad and actually 88% of the most popular pornography um, scenes include aggressive um, sexual acts and 30% of all internet traffic is pornography related so it's very pervasive (laughs) I guess the number one thing I would say is to get yourself educated if you're not The most helpful websites are for young people about general media use, about violence and video games and all those sorts of things. CommonSenseMedia.org is probably the best site. They have heaps of interesting things like things you didn't know about Fortnite, um, things your kids know about Fortnite that you don't know. Trying to stay ahead of the young people is almost impossible, but at least trying to not be left too far behind is good. Um, And then helpful sites... Um, about pornography is Fight the New Drug and It's Time We Talked, um, are two government sites that are really good. Practice media literacy with young people, um, have discussions where you critique the use of um, sexualized content in the media. Be a media role model. The young person will copy how you use your phone, how you watch TV, what you watch, how you interact with your media, they will do the same um, or worse. So try and be a role model. And I definitely recommend removing all screens from bedrooms and using filtering software. So three take-home messages. If the mental health concerns are getting in, in the way of daily life, that's when you should try and see a GP or you can call the mental health access line, which is sort of like the triage phone line, which is one 800 And don't be afraid to talk about mental illness with a young person. That's, you know, it doesn't make it worse to talk about it it usually makes it better. And then use online resources, apps and books to get more informed about mental health and to learn preventative strategies. I would recommend a whole family do a online CBT course for a little bit of holiday fun. I'll give you a few good ones in the next slide. But yeah, I don't. it would reduce the stigma and you can learn preventative strategies even if there is no problems. Probably the best book I've ever read that integrates mental illness and biblical theology. It's Grace for the Afflicted. It's a little bit of a hard read. It's kind of for clinicians, but I think everyone could benefit. So if you're interested in that, you can come take a photo or write that down. This one is written for parents, school counsellors, teachers, and a lot of what I wrote, the red flags and stuff, is from this book. And it's really good. They have a website, um, Generation Next is a really um, helpful resource for people who are wanting a bit more of a lay approach of what you should do, what could you do, what's out there. So I'd really recommend that and their website, Generation Next. The title is Growing Happy, Healthy Young Minds. But just the brand, Generation Next, that's the organisation. It's really good. The websites, the best websites I'd recommend is Beyond Blue. Uh, That's probably the best not-for-profit I've come across. Um, Headspace can also be helpful And then the CBT apps, Mind Spot. 
This is for 18 to 25-year-olds. It's developed by the Macquarie University. You do an assessment and it tells you what course to do and they're usually free and that's got excellent evidence for reducing distress. Okay, so that's MindSpot and then probably Mood Gym, M-O-O-D-G-Y-M and then also Brave, which is a program for anxiety. There's, it's from three-year-olds onwards so that's probably the best one for anxiety for everyone. There's three different programs. And then also Brave. So you can just Google Brave Program, Google MindSpot and Google Mood Gym. They're the top three. And then in terms of just information, Beyond Blue probably has the best access to everything. Anyway, that's all I have time for. I probably have spent too much time. If you go to tinyurl.com slash sfest, S-F-E-S-T, 2019 S H A Y E S S Hayes. Um, that's where I put all my a link to all my slides, and I've password protected it so that not everyone can have it. Just people who are here, and the password is SFest 2019, all lowercase. And if you want to chat to me, come talk to me after. But that's all for me now. <laughs>